We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. You played ball with Kobe in high school. I've played Kobe in my life 200 times. Never beat him. Never beat him. That, that might not seem like a big deal, but when you play a game like that where you got you got the ball first and all you got to do is score, you think I'd win one. Some. But he took this shit so serious. He had a level of, like, obsession with winning and discipline about it. I remember one day I came to the gym, and he was shooting free throws left-handed. You will never need a left-handed free, free throw. throw. And then I remember it was in the middle of his career, and he broke his hand in the middle of a play and he shot the free throw left-handed. The idea that he was preparing for some shit that the rest of us couldn't even imagine, but the idea that he was imagining a moment like that, and the fact that he was willing to work an extra hour or two just in case that one moment happened, sure. was a testament to his discipline and his commitment as a basketball player. And what I'm saying is, is that as intellectuals, that level of commitment and discipline is also there. Mark Lamont Hill has been my friend for a long time, and he's one of the coolest smart guys you could ever meet. You've probably heard him talk a lot about social justice, but I wanted this conversation to be different. I wanted to give you more of a slice of the Mark I know, who's much more of a shit talker and an unquestionable basketball expert. He sat front row at the 76ers games for years, and he knows his stuff, and he is Mr. 76er. We talk a lot about his teenage years in Philly and growing up around the late Kobe Bryant. We did this interview before Kobe tragically passed away in a helicopter accident, but it feels more necessary now than ever before. Before we get in, the Patreon era of Torrey show starts in February. We're going to have two episodes a week, including a Friday Patreon exclusive for our Patreon supporters. For that, go to patreon.com slash show. All right, let's go. It's Dr. Mark Lamont Hill on Torrey Show. What up, y'all? It's Torrey Show live from Lincoln Center. This is Ad Week, and we're here with Dr. Mark Lamont Hill. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, man. Why you laugh? A doctor always throws me off. Why? I don't know. I, I never say it. I never use it. So it's always weird to me. But you're a real intellectual. I'll, I'll take that. And I, I mean, and that's, I've just always respected that about you, that you're not like, well, I read a couple of books <laughs> and I know a couple big words, but I've like real, I mean, like, you know, when I went to your house, like the stacks of books <laughs> are crazy. And you're like, yeah, that's this month. I got to read, man. That's the job. That's the job. That's the job. Man. I want to talk about being an intellectual and becoming an intellectual. But first off, 
You said you're the Michael Jordan of NBA 2K. When you said that, you mean like Jordan now that he's retired and he's like a step slow? Like, you know, what are you talking about? You know, it, it's so interesting. I, I don't know if I use the word Michael Jordan. I probably would take it another level. I would say more like Kareem, <laughs> you know, like just pure domination, unprecedented levels of domination. Wow. But like, you know, when people, when people think of academics, they sometimes don't realize we play video games too. Okay. And I, I am the best video game player you've ever met in real life <laughs> so you know <laughs> at this particular video game or all video games i have a natural talent for it you know for all video games yeah you know like alan iverson was born with like extra long hands and mm-hmm. so even though he was in and like he was super fast mm-hmm. um and that made him unusually you know hard to guard mm-hmm. in video games i have unusual discipline <laughs> you know un- an unusual ability to sit down and and and, and, and hunker down and and, and and replicate my my movements. Yeah, I got those twitch muscle fibers in my thumbs, man. I'm a monster. You, you have fingers that are better for video games than other people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and greater concentration. Those two things together, man. Have you competed? You know, so you're just talking shit, but you haven't actually. I play online, you know, and after a while, and, and the problem is, I talk so much shit, <laughs> you know, and then. When, one time I was terrorizing some kid in South Asia so bad. Like his mom got on the line. I was like, this, you know, my boy is 15. Leave him alone. Are you serious? Yeah. And I felt like a monster after that. So, so now I only play people for money and I only play people like in real life. You play people for money? Oh my God, yes. How much money have you made? More than I'd like to say on, on the air. How much? But, you, know, it's, you know, it's non-disclosures and shit like that. Four figures? Oh, more than four figures. How much are you playing for in do. the game? I, I, all jokes aside, I play celebrities in 2K and in Madden. Because what happens is rappers and, and, and actors... And athletes love to talk shit about their video game talents. So I always take them up for it. And sometimes we'll play, you know, 1,000 a game, 2,000 a game. And they lose. And for some reason, they think because you read books for a living that somehow you can't be good at a video game. Let's let's call out some names. I will not. Who have you beaten? I, I will I will not. Come I will on. not. Nah, give me one. There are there are there are rules to this. There's a whole oh, I've already said too much. Yes. Why are, are you on Twitch? Like with other people watching you? Like No, nah, this is like usually just like people come to the crib, drink, talk shit, especially when I'm in New York, drink, talk shit, and, and lose their money. Wow. Yeah. You some people get mad enough to fight, man. You're, people <laughs> well, take it real serious. I, oh, I know that. Because I talk cash money shit when I'm playing it and, and they don't like that. <laughs> One of the jobs, man. So the Lakers have Nicholson. The Knicks have Spike Lee. The Sixers have you. You know, I don't take that, you know, because there's so many people who are way more famous that go to the games. I go to the games more than Meek and Kevin, you know what I mean? But, you know. I mean, the, you're on a baseline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm course Every side. game. You there, like, you know. Oh, yeah, I've been there since the, since the 10 win season. Right. Before the 10 win season. I've you been, think that the Sixers are the best team in the East right now? Uh, I do. I do. I think that people give Milwaukee credit um, because they were, you know, a few bounces away from maybe making it to the the past uh, Toronto and Toronto beat Golden State. Right. But I think we have a deeper team. I think we're a much better defensive team. Losing J.J. Reddick killed us. uh, So we're going to have some trouble uh, hitting shots, you know, but I I think we can pick some people up on waivers that can make that can address that. I think I think the Sixers are going to be tough to guard, man. And now we got a breathe with Al, Hor- Al, um, Al Horford. We have a breather for Embiid. And we can do that low management thing these young kids do, where they only play sixty games a year instead of eighty. Sure. And so now we can do that with him without worry about injuries. You seem to have a very tall team in a league that's been getting shorter and spreading the floor more. I don't know if the team is get- league is getting. Sh- I think centers are getting shorter. There's the, the center position is going, but it's much more about positionless basketball. So. You know, when you got a team like the Sixers where everybody's going to be 
tall and athletic and can switch, you know, that's a good thing. I think when you look at Toronto last year, they had a bunch of guys, except for Kyle Lowry, they had guys who could who were tall and athletic and who could switch. So I, I think from a basketball perspective, we're going to be fine. I, I have a little concern about Al, Al Horford and, and B taking up some of the same space, but we can keep him beat in the box and Horford can stretch the floor at the top of the, at the top of the key hitting that three. I actually think we're going to be a very tough team to beat. Again, the problem is going to be the bench. We don't have much of a bench, but I think we can win the East if we I, stay healthy. I grew up as a Celtics fan. But I can't. Don't don't make don't make the face. Don't make the face. I just I don't who, like who, black people who, who like the Celtics. Who, who, what was the first team in the NBA to get a black player? What was the first team in the NBA <laughs> to have Celtics. a black coach? You, you saw what was the first team? Wasn't in the NBA all the same guy? No, was the first time black guy to clean the gym? It's all the same guy. Bill Russell. Bill Russell was the first black coach. Yes. Right. The first black player. Oh, his name is escaping me. Right. I think it was Chuck Cooper. Yeah, that's right. That's right, 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 right. Right before. Right before. You know who's they had an all black five in the sixty. Right. I mean, my dad. Casey Jones was the coach, right? And they had a very white squad. Yeah. But my dad would blow people's minds because people would say that shit like, how can black people root for the Celtics? And he'd be like, we got a black coach telling the white boys what to do. You got a white coach yeah. telling the black guys, so you got a plantation team and we got a progressive team. Who are you rooting for? I, I see where you got. Like, oh wow! I see where you get your art of, of spin from. But <laughs> but 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 most athlete, most black athletes in Boston would say that that was a racist ass town, including Bill Russell. Oh, the town, no doubt. Yeah, and so oh, no for doubt. me, it's like the way they treat players. The way they, even the fact that it took so long for us to think about that as Bill Russell's team and not like a koozie team, right? I don't know about that. I mean, when Russell was winning 11, I think people thought of it as Russell's team. And I mean, the town, no doubt. But Boston is both racist and progressive. Yes, right? very There's true. The, the Kennedys and, you know, who are, you know, East Boston where you can't go, right? Southie where you can't. I mean, the Red Sox really lived that uh, racist vibe, right? They were the last team to integrate. The Celtics were a little bit more... Progressive and Absolutely. trying to bring black people into the game. But, and by progressive, you mean they couldn't win without them. Well, nobody could win without them. No, but I'm saying that, that was the argument. It wasn't like they got more progressive. They were just like people kept blowing past them. <laughs> but people wanted to win. I mean, yeah, that's what I'm that saying. That ain't progressive. That's pragmatic. It was definitely pragmatic. Yeah. Then, oh God, I remember we went to dinner at this nice restaurant. I think it was, I think it was 83, mm-hmm. right? And we're, we're having dinner. And it's the night before one of the epic Celtic Sixers game sevens. Yeah, we won that, by the way. And, Spoiler no, alert. You, no, you're going to lose that. And, 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 and Billy Cunningham was having dinner with a couple people, like a couple tables over. I'm like, yo, dad, that's, that's Billy Cunningham. He's like, well, go say hi. And so I go over and talk to him. Now, of course, everybody's sort of watching but not saying anything, pretending right. not to. But when the little kid jumps in, like, hey, how you doing? I'm Torre. I'm this tall. What's up? And he's like, hey, kid, how you doing? It's so-and-so. It's so-and-so. Okay, great. We said hi. All right, beat it. And he's like, all right, sir. Thanks for, you know, thanks for letting me talk to you. You know, I-, I would wish you good luck, but I can't. See, that's, that's the spirit I like. That's the spirit I like. That's what I'm talking about. You did it. You, you did it for the wrong people. You did it in the service of the wrong team, the enemy. But and here's what I don't understand about you, Teray. I, I, and I, I'm trying my best to. Wow. How did you go from being a Boston lover to being a New York lover? Well, I feel like that's. I've lived here now for 25 years, and my dad grew up here in New York, rooting for Jackie Robinson when he was playing. So. The tie to New York was always deep to me. It was like, I grew up, my parents constantly saying, New York is where it's at. You but it's the same go to conference. There had to be a year where you were no longer cheering for Larry Bird and you were cheering for Patrick Ewing. Uh, that did not happen like, that, like A to B because I spent a couple years in Atlanta. 
So that kind of cleansed me of uh, rooting for Boston. Like a moose bouge of teams, and then yeah, you went back. I, yeah, I, and I wasn't rooting for the Atlanta teams. I wasn't really paying attention to anybody. Right. But the Knicks just like hurt. I mean, like being a Knicks fan was pain. I'm not a Knicks fan at all anymore. Because it was just painful. See, and I guess being from Philly, we don't have those luxuries. We ride or die, man. It, well, it's a small town, right? But there's an incredible sports history in Philadelphia with all those teams. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely, man. And I, I, I live and die with it, man. Well, it's painful for me to say, but the Sixers are one of the great historic franchises in the NBA. Multiple generations of great players, great teams. Who is your, let's say, Sixers all-time top five? By position or just top five players? Top five straight up. Wilt Chamberlain, for me, stands as the most dominant player in the history of basketball. Number one in the history of the Sixers? You didn't say the whole league. In terms of dominance? Absolutely. It's not even close. Okay. It's not even close. I think the only thing close to him is maybe Shaq and Kareem in terms of dominance. Okay. I'm not saying Wilt's the best. I I think Kareem's the greatest player we've ever seen. Okay. Um, Kareem? You put Kareem above MJ? In basketball? Yes. Really? Yeah, and I'll tell you why in a second. Okay. Um... But it's Will, it would be uh, Dr. J, of course. Yeah. Charles Barkley. Wow, he's an AI yet. Uh, Allen Iverson. So Allen Iverson is fourth behind Barkley? This, yeah, but this, really? isn't, this wasn't necessarily in order, but this would be my order. Okay. And I'm going to throw Moses Malone in there. Okay. Um, okay. You know, I don't. That wouldn't be my order, though. The, the issue with Moses is that he only played a few years here, but, he, br- okay. but he brought us a championship. That's but, okay. but, yeah. but he was at his, he was he was a high level player. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think Charles, I take Charles Barkley in his prime over Allen Iverson. Yeah. Wow. So, I don't think you win a championship with Allen Iverson. So your NBA all time is Kareem and then Jordan. Yes. Why? What, what's people? There's this thing when I wear it's like a, a shibboleth where you have to say that Michael Jordan is the greatest player ever. Yeah. What's the argument for, for, for Michael Jordan being better than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? I mean, you watched the careers? Yeah, so Kareem won every year in high school, every year in college. He won in Milwaukee. I'm talking then he won about, five rings in L.A. I'm talking about the NBA. No, no, but I'm saying he's dominated at every level. He's, I understand he's, that. He's the all-time leading scorer. Okay. Uh, he won, again, six rings, just like MJ, on two different teams. Um, I don't see, I don't see the, I think he was, he played, he had a better career longer, right? I mean, interesting. And he didn't, he didn't, he didn't stop to play baseball. I don't know what Michael Jordan's career would have looked like if he kept playing. I'm not hating on Kareem. I love Kareem. He was on this show. Mad respect for Kareem. Did you tell him then you thought he wasn't shit? I never said he wasn't shit. I never said he wasn't shit. I wonder what he would say in terms of where he is all time. He would say he's number one. He as he should, as he should, because because he know he has he has eyes and he has a basketball IQ. Wow. Look, I don't think it's wrong to say Michael Jordan is the greatest player ever. I just I just I just don't like the narrative that it's indisputable that Michael Jordan is the greatest player ever because we construct all these narratives around Michael Jordan to make him the best. Now it's who has more rings. When Michael had three and they were saying he was the greatest, nobody was sure. like, "Well, Magic's better because he has more rings." Sure, they just waited till he had more rings than everybody <laughs> who he was being compared to. Right, right, right. Larry Magic to say that, but Kareem still stands there. I, I don't get the, Kareem dominated the game at every level. Right. Kareem has been unstoppable since he, since he could walk. So who's three, four, and five? I think that's where it becomes, you know. Trickier. It, it becomes pick your poison. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I, think, I think you got to have Kareem. I think you have to have Kareem and, and Michael at the top, but I think LeBron's in that conversation. Sure. I think um, Shaq's in that conversation. Yeah. I think um, if Kobe. we're talking about just because Shaq was pure dominant. Kobe's in the top 10. I don't think he's in the top five. Not, not, not in your top not five? Not my top five, no. I, I, I think I would take, 
if I were building a team, I'd rather have Shaq or Tim Duncan over Kobe. But I don't think it's wrong to take Kobe over either of them. That's what I'm saying. These are all in the mix. Yeah. If, Co- if Kobe's in your top five, I don't think that's bonkers. Right. But I think LeBron being somewhere around three or four makes sense for me. I think yeah. Tim Duncan, Shaq, Akeem Olajuwon, all in that mix. You know what I mean? In terms of if, if I were draft, my criteria criterion is if I drafted a team today, right, and the person could dominate in their era, yeah, who would I pick? Right. And so Wilt Chamberlain dominated the game. Didn't win a lot of championships, but he dominated the game. Kareem dominated the game, won six rings. Yeah. Michael dominated the game, won six rings. I mean, that stuff matters. From your front row seat uh, for, the Philly, for, for, the, for the Sixers, yeah. who has been the most fun player to watch, either Sixer or not? Oh, man. So I'll tell you this. So on the, from, the, from just pure eyeball standpoint, there's nobody for your money better than Allen Iverson. Watching somebody who's your height, skinny just like you, you know what I mean? Creative. Regular looking dude go there and just dominate giants. Is, just, he puts on a show every night. And the strength, right? The, the fortitude. He falls. He doesn't care. Right. He's somebody who, who looks ordinary, who can do extraordinary superhuman things. He's been wonderful to watch over the years. Another person who's uh, great to watch. Uh, like, like I remember when Nick Young played for the Sixers. He was fun to watch just because... He's swaggy P, right? So, so it's, it's, it's not even a basketball thing as much as it is the level of showmanship and pride and trash talking and stuff. And watching him and the, and the coach argue back and forth was amazing to watch. Now, from, a, from, from an incoming standpoint, watching when LeBron was in his prime, watching him come into a gym and just be so much better at basketball than everybody else in the gym was, is, like, stunning to watch. Yeah. Watching Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook, same thing, right? They were better than everybody else, but, they, but Kevin... Was this guy like you? Just you like please, just don't shoot the ball. Just don't fucking shoot the ball because it's going in. And Russell had so much intensity. I love LeBron. I love KD. But Russell's speed and the jumping—he's like a video game he player. Is like a video. It's, it's it's like he's just on another track versus everyone else. Exactly. It doesn't make for winning. It gives me, he and right. Iverson, I think, have the same problem. You know what I mean? Is it? I think there are other things you need to win a basketball game. Sometimes slowing down and doing less is important. But he's fun to watch. The funnest person to heckle, the two funnest people to heckle, absolutely Dwight Howard. And he would talk back? Dwight Howard talks back the whole game. And he gets so angry. It's like, it's like he gets so wrapped up. Like you, it's, like you can, you can it's like he has a big red button on him. You can just keep pushing the button, you know what I mean? And, 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 and he just makes him angry every time. And who else? Um, Russell will tune you out in the fourth quarter. But if you talk shit to Russell, and like I don't talk shit like disrespectful talk shit. I talk sure. shit like clown, like, you know... You know, he, you can't guard him, blah, 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 blah. He, that just turns him up a notch. Now, James Harden, James Harden is a dude you don't want to talk shit to. Because it makes him better. It makes him, so I, I was sitting there, I was sitting there, and Kevin was to my left, Kevin Hart, and, and he was talking shit to, 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 uh, to Harden one time, and then we ended up losing that game, and Harden, like, I swear to God, it was like he, uh, it was like he had another level of talent that I, didn't, that I didn't know, and Kevin unlocked, like, Mortal Kombat fatality level. And, and, and after that, I was like, yeah, I ain't never talking shit to Who's good this at clapbacks when you're... Richard st- Jefferson. Really? Richard Jefferson's good. He, he, he clowned, because people were heckling him in third back, or he started clowning them, telling them how broke they were, but in this really funny way, not like in a, like, I'm better than you way, just in a, like, you're going to talk shit, I'm going to talk shit back kind of right. way. It, it, was ama- it was actually amazing. So what was the Dwight Howard conversation? You know, with Dwight, it's like, he, 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 at the time, I can't speak for him now, but like, just for like two or three seasons in a row, like every time he would come to the, to the arena... I would fu- I would fuck with him about not being a superstar. So like so like if he would he would like he would he would be guarding beat and beat would like back him down and score and get an and one. 
And I and he'd be like, he'd be screaming at the ref, that ain't no foul. I'd be like, yeah, it is if you a superstar. And he'd be like, it's two superstars. And I'd be like, where the other one at? You know what I mean? And then he would just <laughs> he would be He's so saying angry. to you, it's two superstars, yeah. and you're like, you're not. Exactly. Which only eggs me on because you know I got nothing but time. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And, and it would just turn him up a notch. And then I'm not I I don't want to overstate my impact. But he definitely is yelling back and forth. It does look like he's trying harder to prove that, that he's that dude. And 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 I and I like the way Howard. I think he's a great player. Uh, and was a you a, do? Yeah. And I think he's a Hall of Famer. You do? I think the Dwight number Howard. I think when you look at his numbers, it would be absurd to say Dwight Howard's not a not think, a Hall of Famer. I think you're being nice. I think you haven't looked at his numbers. <laughs> He's the, he was all defensive team, defensive player of the year multiple times, rebounds, blocks, uh, his, his all time points. He's in the he's in the conversation. I, I mean, Grant Hill's in the in in, in the. That's got to be the quietest Hall of Fame career I ever. I'm gonna send you his numbers. You're gonna be like, oh shit, I didn't realize the way. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. The quietest Hall of Fame career. Right. Even 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 as he's dipping now, he still he still puts up solid numbers. I, I, you know, I think about Dwight Howard. I think about him going to the Lakers and the sense of like, here we go, we got this, we got the big seven footer. He was a complete bust. He did not help the team at all. I mean, at what what station has he taken the team and elevated Orlando? Them? He took Orlando to the finals. Yeah, and they beat they beat they eliminated a very young LeBron, a very good young LeBron team. I think they beat the Pistons that year too, but they definitely went to the finals. They got their ass handed to them. But to take that team to the finals was extraordinary. Yeah, you know, I mean, Dwight was he just didn't fit with Kobe. Kobe has Kobe has another level of talent and another level of intensity. And if you don't, if you can't match it, it can be a tough fit. Yeah, yeah. he might punch you in practice, whatever. Kobe's, you, Kobe's a legend, man. You, let's switch to politics. You said I would rather Trump be president, right, and build a real left wing, than yeah. let Hillary be president and we stay with the status quo. After three some years of Trump, you still believe that? Has it been worth it? It's a good question. I'm not sure that that reflects exactly what I, the spirit of what I was saying. Okay, well, let's. So, so I was asked an abstract question. Okay, right. It wasn't. Do you want Trump to be president? Of course. Or do you want Hillary to be president? Right. And and my, I wasn't operating from the presumption that Trump would be president and this radical left wing movement would emerge and we'd win. I was saying if that were the case, sure, I'd be okay with that. Okay. My point was, and 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 again, this was in a this was one very particular interview. I gave 500 interviews that summer. My book, Nobody Was Out. Um, I was on tour. Um, all this shit was happening. And for some reason, that one interview is the one that, that emerges when I went around the country saying something very much more nuanced. Okay. So, uh, well, well, let's get to your, what was, but, but my it point, is your real point. My, my point was, we can't every four years be terrified of the other candidates so much that we vote our fears and not our political aspirations. Yes. That was, that was the point. Yes. You know what I mean? And the genesis of this conversation was before Trump was the nominee. Okay. So and we, many of us were expecting Jeb Bush. And there was a time where the common sense was that Jeb Bush would be running against Hillary Clinton. Right. And the, and the conversation was, you know, Jeb Bush is bad for America, but what do we do? Do we vote for Clinton? Do we not vote for Clinton? Do we vote for Bernie? Do we vote for, you know, do we vote, you know, in my case, Green? Like, do we pick a, a pathway that is less likely to be victorious in the short term, but might actually put us on a radical pathway or at least a progressive pathway long term? That was the conversation I was trying to have. That's the conversation I was having. And then I think it was on The Breakfast Club, and I think it was Envy or somebody who asked me something like, you know, but what about Trump? Like, what if Trump wins? And I was like, well, I'd rather Trump win. And? Right. And this other thing happened than to keep the status quo. You're not fully on the useful apocalypse side of Susan Sarandon. No, 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 no. That's not what you're saying. In fact, if if you watch the rest of the interview, and if you look at, for example, the interview I did with uh, Vlad uh, the next day, and, and actually the previous week, excuse me, um, one of the things I said was, 
our priority has to be to keep Trump out the White House. Sure. So for me, as a Green Party member, how did I navigate doing that? Because people say you can't do all those things at once. You can't vote Green and keep Trump out the White House. I advocated vote trading. Which means what? Which means that I'm in Pennsylvania and you're in Delaware or I'm in Michigan and you're in California. In California, it doesn't matter who I vote for. Sure. Hillary's going to win. It's blue. Yeah. It's blue. You know what I mean? And in Mississippi, it doesn't matter. It's, it's going to be red. Yeah. Right? So if you live in Mississippi, then you vote your conscience. Okay. And me in California, I'll vote what will keep Trump out the White House. That's vote trading. Okay. In other words, if I, vote trading means it's, it's strategic balloting. It means that you vote your conscience in states where you can afford to do so. You encourage people to do that. And if you have friends or other people who, who believe in a, in a left-wing movement but simply are in a state where they can't do that, or in a state where they can do that and you aren't, then, then they can vote green, even if they weren't necessarily inclined to. For example, if you lived in Mississippi, I might be able to convince you, Ture, to vote green for me if I could convince you that it doesn't matter. As long as if I'm in Pennsylvania, I vote Hillary for you. Do you think that the Green Party vote in 2016 kept Hillary from winning? Absolutely not. Even though we see, you know, margins in Wisconsin... Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania that are lar- for the Greens that are larger than the difference between Hillary and Trump. As somebody who's been a Green Party member for, for almost two decades now, um, I can tell you that many people who vote Green do not vote Democrat as their second option. Okay. They don't vote Green because they weren't persuaded by the Democratic Party candidate that, uh, that are time. They, would they have voted Republican second or not at all? They either, vote, they either write someone in, they vote Republican um, sometimes, not usually. Um, they usually vote for another left-wing candidate. Do you have a sense of the percentage of Greens who are disaffected Dems versus disaffected Republicans? Greens are typically not disaffected Republicans, but many aren't disaffected Dems either. There's a large number who are dem- disaffected Dems, but there are many who, who have never been part of the Democratic Party because it simply doesn't represent their politics. Okay. So, for example, if you're, in a state like, if you're in a state like Michigan or Pennsylvania and you say, well, look... Hillary lost by 30, I don't remember the exact numbers, but let's say Hillary lost by 36,000 votes and there were 36,200 green. The idea that those 36,200 people who knew what was at stake would, if, they, if green simply hadn't run a candidate, would have voted for Hillary is absurd. They knew what was at stake. They knew the political landscape. They made a choice. They made a choice. And if you look at the exit polling, which is the best, you know, some of the best data we have, they, many of them say, in more than two, you know, two or three hundred people, we're talking about thousands sure. of people, say, you know, it, my second candidate was not Hillary. My second candidate was to not vote or to write in or to even vote for uh, uh, Johnson. Or, who, who, sure. Yeah, I mean, so, so no, I, I don't think that... What is the Green Party serving these folks? What are they offering these folks that leads to them saying, I'm not voting Hillary even though... Trump, get, Trump winning is, sounds horrible to me. So, and let me preface this by saying I also am not confident. Uh, many of us didn't think that Trump could win. And I think that had we known the stakes of Trump, not the stakes, if, if, if people had thought that, that Trump was going to win, I think there are people who would have voted differently. Not everybody, but some would have. So I, I want to preface that. So Because I, I don't want to make it seem like, in retrospect, people are like, oh, yeah, I'm voting green because I know Trump's going to win. Because not everybody acts like they knew Trump was going to win. Most people thought he wouldn't. I was, I was, I was covering it. We, we sent all the cameras, all the reporters to Hillary's party. There right. was nobody at Trump. Right. You know what I mean? Like, we had to, we had to, we had to do a, an audible. 
<laughs> at nine o'clock and figure out how to get people over to Trump headquarters and how to get people out of Hillary headquarters. I was on. I was supposed to be on Sirius that night. Yeah, doing a recap like eleven p.m., twelve a.m. That sort of. And I was writing my notes at seven p.m. And it was all about why Hillary won. Right. But I knew I had a problem when I was like, all your notes are why Trump should not have won. You don't have any real notes on why Hillary should have won. Beyond the brilliance. Right. Beyond the resume. The competence. Right. The merit. (laughs) Right. Like all that. Absolutely. But like, wait, what did you, you, your Hillary pro side is thin versus your anti-Trump side. That's a problem. Right. And Hillary did a bad job, I think, in particularly in states like Florida and other places where they took for granted the vote um, and didn't really shore things up. And so I think it's much easier to blame the Green Party or to to blame whomever rather than to say, hey, Democrats didn't listen to the base. They coordinated efforts to make sure that Hillary would be the nominee and not Bernie. Dems made mistakes. But what did the Greens or what do the Greens do right to have people say, I'm voting for them? I think that's a good question. Um, And I'll tell you what they do wrong as well. Okay. Um, The Green Party offers a progressive vision of the world that I think corresponds to many people's desires. I find a lot of people say, I want these 10 things. Mm -hmm. Um, The Democratic nominee supports five of them or six mm-hmm. of them mm-hmm. or they support eight of them but but they're only reasonably going to fight for five or six of sure, them sure um and so we're conceding way too much territory wh- wh- whereas republicans are fighting for everything they want tooth and nail mm-hmm. and this becomes the conversation and so when the green party comes and says wait a minute let's no longer make the environment a non-starter in in political discourse i'm talking about like 20 years ago right mm-hmm. Let, let's no longer make uh mid- certain middle east policy whether it's not just Israel, Palestine, but Syria, Iraq, whatever, in the 90s, right? A non-starter. Let's not do that, right? Let's, have, let's not assume that we can't have a conversation about single-payer health care, you know what I mean, or, 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 Medic, or, or, or Medicaid for all, or whatever the thing might be in the 2000s. Let's not, let's not assume that we can't do that, right? Let's not make that a non-starter. And so the Green Party was, att- was attempting to say, look, we can have a platform that reflects who we want to be, and then we can fight for that. And we can build a base and we can we can we can get federal funding if we, if we meet the minimum number of votes, which is the point of, of even voting in these running in these primaries. We can do these things and we can build a movement that will either shift people toward the Green Party or shift the political conversation in such a way that Democrats are fighting for different things in much the same way that the Tea Party was able to shift people, was able to drag the Republican Party back to the right even though some of their presidential nominees were still a little different, um, they were able to move the conversation. And then when you look in state houses, when you look in the Congress, the U.S. Congress, you see the effects of it 10 years later. And, and so that's the goal. I think where the Green Party has gone wrong, and what has deeply frustrated me with the Green Party, is that if we only show up every four years, if right. we only show up and say, hey, we're running Joe Stein, hey, we're running Joe Stein, um, hey, you know, running Cynthia McKinney in 08, um, then we just look like spoilers. Right. And what we need to be doing more of, and I take responsibility for this too, is building on the ground, developing mayoral candidates, developing more uh, city council seats, developing more state house seats. And if we build that up over time, I think we can have in 20 years a legitimate third party option that will probably not result in having three real parties in America because the way representative, our representative system works, that probably won't work, but at least shifting the Democratic Party to a more progressive agenda. You, That's the goal. But we're, not, we're failing at it.
We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. We'll get back to the show in a minute, but let me tell you about something that's truly changed my life. This isn't a paid ad. This is me from the heart because I used to be emotionally illiterate with no ability to read or understand my feelings. And then I joined this amazing group of men who helped me learn how to be emotionally aware in a masculine way and how that understanding of myself and my feelings could change my life. I was so resistant to thinking about my feelings for a long, long time. But when I finally opened myself up to being thoughtful about my emotional body, I'm telling you, it changed my life and it made my wife a lot happier with me. And it made it easier for me to understand myself and the people around me. I want you to have that same breakthrough I had, which has made a massive difference for me. The group I joined is called Everyman. That's E-V-R-Y-M-A-N, Everyman. And they've been on Today Show and Joe Rogan and in GQ. 
And now they've got this live online course going for the next six weeks. That's amazing and will truly help you change your life. I mean it. Go to everyman.com slash fundamentals and use the checkout code Torre and they'll give you $20 off the price of the course. I promise you this is real and powerful. It's not woo-woo or hokey. And if you try this, it'll open you up to a whole new part of you and it'll help you be a better you. That's what it did for me. So go to everyman.com slash fundamentals, everyman.com slash fundamentals and use the checkout code Torre and get $20 off the price and take a course that'll blow you away. But it's a live workshop with the leaders of Everyman, guys who taught me a lot. So you got to sign up by February 4th on everyman.com slash fundamentals. Do you see yourself potentially on a Green Party ticket at some point? No, I, turned, I, I, was, I, was, I was asked to run last time. I was asked to be Jill Stein's nominee. Uh, vice president? Vice president, excuse me. Yeah, I was, really? I, Jill asked me to be her vice president. I don't, know if, yeah, I don't think that's a secret. Yeah, I, I turned it down. Why'd you turn it down? <sighs> First, why'd she ask you? Um, I think she thought that I had the right politics and the right vision and I could, I could engage the right audiences, um, that we shared certain common goals and, and the desire to see um, to see America shift in ways that would create greater safety and freedom and opportunity for everybody. I think I think she saw that, um, and I was I thought about it, but it it, it wasn't my calling. Why did you say no? Because um, you don't seem to say no to much. <laughs> You'd be surprised how much how much that I say no to. I see you on TV all the time. He does whatevs. No, I'm not, yeah, I'm no, not no, hating. I'm no, not no. I mean, you get a lot of jobs. I have a lot of jobs, but they they always reflect my principles and my goals. Sure, you know. And I didn't think that I have a few. I, no one's ever asked me this before, so that's why I'm I'm, think, I'm thinking about the most the most genuine answer I can give you. By trying to remember where I was at that time, because sure. there's been a lot to happen in the last three years. Um, I didn't run one because I felt like my calling at this junction in history, at this junction, at that junction in history, and this one, is to be an intellectual. Mm-hmm. It's to write and to think mm-hmm. and to engage. Um, I didn't think that it would make good sense uh, for me strategically, and I thought that there were better people who could re- carry the Green Party agenda in spaces that I could not, um, not because I didn't share their politics, but because I thought that they were better at it. I thought that they were smarter and, and more adept at, at campaign. I'm not a campaigner. You know what I mean? You're I, not? not I'm, I'm not a politician. It's not what I do. Um, and you're not a natural, excuse me, you're not a historic politician, but you're charismatic. You like talking to people. You seem to be, you know, to know what to say when people throw different ideas at is you. That, is that so? I mean, like, I, I think you would be great at it. I mean, maybe, you know, and maybe one day I'll do it, but it, it, it certainly wasn't my calling. And the, pers- and the people who ended up, Jill Stein ran a wonderful campaign at the time. Uh, we have plenty of critiques after sure. the election, but in terms, of, in terms of getting moving forward the Green Party agenda, I'm only talking about in terms of articulating the Green Party agenda. And Ajamo Baraka is brilliant and, and smart and a real activist who has all kinds of radical bona fides, and, and I think he was a much better choice. Um, and... I, 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 I'm grateful um, that I had the opportunity to advocate and fight for the Green Party and to support their ticket in public spaces. And as someone who was on cable news and someone who's in, who was on the lecture circuit and other places, for me, I thought it was more important for me to be on CNN 
fighting for the Green Party and advancing a, a Stein uh, Barack ticket than it was for me to be on the ticket myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me at that moment in history, it just wasn't wise. Um, you know, I wouldn't say I'll never do it, but I, I, it's, it just wasn't my time then and it's not my time now. Um, but I'm, I'm, I, I, I love what they stood for on that campaign. I think, though, the Green Party, we have to move beyond every four years or, or appearing to the public like every four years is all we do. Sure. We need, we need to represent... Uh, we need we need a candidate. Of, we need a nominee of color. I think at the top of the ticket this time around. Um, but I think also we have to be really thoughtful and strategic about how we convince people that getting rid of Trump isn't the most important thing and, and, and the most important component of saving the, of saving this nation to to whatever degree it can be saved. And so honestly, for me, even at the ideological level, I have to say, could I, in good conscience, run? You know what I mean? Do I want to run against whoever's running against Trump? So you might be the nominee next time? No, I'm saying I'm, I'm saying I would have to ask myself that question because I can't in good conscience say yes. Yeah. I would not run um, because I, I do prioritize getting rid of Trump. I do prioritize changing uh, what's going on here. Um, and it's not that I didn't before, but I think we have to do it with a different level of intensity. I mean, to go back to something you said earlier, that we should be voting not out of fear. Right. But out of aspiration. Yeah. And I feel like the Democratic Party and in specific black voters are definitely operating out of fear of Trump winning and saying Biden is the most likely to beat him because other people, i.e. Trump voters, might be interested in voting for him. Yeah. So we have to nominate him and we can't. And I'm like, but who do you want? And they seem to always talk about who other people might vote for. And I'm. I'm frightened and disappointed to see Biden winning with massive black support when I'm like, what is he proposing that would that would merit him getting half of black Democratic voters? Yeah. You know, black black voters are loyal, man. True. Um, Sometimes too much. So Um, I, I think that. There's a conventional wisdom that says that Biden is the closest thing to Obama we're going to get. Mm, how and that? Because he was the vice president. Obama chose him, right? So if Obama, if he's good enough for Obama, he's good enough for me. You know, Obama said it. I believe it. That settles it. You know, that right, you know, right. kind of evangelical, political evangelical, you know, evangelicalism. So I think that's part of it. I think some of it is they're like, we don't know these people. I think some of it is just we don't know who these people are. I think one lesson we learned in 2008 is that while black folk were firmly in support of Hillary, the moment Barack Obama won Iowa, the moment it was clear that a black person could be president, black folk chucked the deuces and went to Obama. Sure. I, I suspect uh, if, if Biden continues to wane in support, or if his numbers continue to dwindle, and the right people win in, in Iowa, I think Elizabeth Warren right now has a very strong chance in Iowa. Mm-hmm. I think Kamala Harris may surprise some people in Iowa. Um, when you begin to see that play out, uh, I think black folk will then begin to vote their hopes and their aspirations rather than their fears. Because right now, voting voting Joe Biden in 2019 is voting your fear. Yeah. There's nothing Joe Biden is saying that's making you want to vote for him. No, nothing. The reason you're voting for Joe Biden is because you think he's the only way to get Trump out. And look, if you have to choose between Trump and Biden, I get the logic. Say, look, we got to get Biden out of there. I mean, we got to get Trump out of there. I get that. What I'm, but what I'm saying, though, is we got a year and a half, you know what I mean, or a year now, I guess, almost, uh, to, to make a decision about who we want, not about who we don't want. It can't just be voting against the other candidate. There has to also be voting for 
this candidate. And right. the notion that all Democrats will show up to vote against Trump because he's the worst thing ever. I don't fully buy that. No, I'm terrified that, you know, a, a enough a big enough slice of black men are going to vote for Donald Trump. I'm terrified that a, a, a significant slice like that 53 percent last time of white women are going to vote for Donald Trump. And if, those, and if we come anywhere near those numbers, you will see a second Trump presidency. So the way to avoid a second Trump presidency is to uh, have a candidate who brings voters out, that energizes the base. Yes. And the way to energize a base is to, get, is to give people aspiration, to give people hope, to give people an affirmative vision of what the world could be, not just a fear of what the world shouldn't be. There's a recent poll said 15% of black men are supporting Trump. Damn. I think it was like two to three percent of black women. Black women are the most loyal uh, Democratic voter, the spy of the Democratic Party. Black men are a little wishy-washy. Why do you think, as a political scientist, why are fifteen percent of black men riding with Trump? I ain't no political scientist, but I tell you this: black folk, uh, black men, sometimes aspire. Uh, too often, our freedom dream is not to really be free but to be like our oppressors. Mm. And so for too many of us, we want the same freedom to dominate that patriarchal white men have. So when you have somebody like, for example, and I'm taking a long way, but you'll see where I'm going. Mm -hmm. When you have somebody like Bill Cosby be, be arrested, tried, and convicted, okay. right? And, 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 and black men are like, why are they doing that to Bill Cosby? They didn't do that to so-and-so. They're not asking for so-and-so to, to also be treated like Bill Cosby. Right. They're asking for Bill Cosby to have the same freedom to be fucked up as, as, the, as the white so-and-so. Right. Right? So similarly, they, many people can recognize how Trump is problematic, but there's a slice of black men who see Donald Trump's wanton indifference to the whims and wishes of anybody else. His indifference to, to his arrogance, his, 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 his obsession with power. And they say, I don't want to defeat that. I want to be that. And so you end up with a slice of people, not a whole bunch, but enough. So is that, is that like the, the we sick? Man? What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrivemarket.com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamin a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi Secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America 
From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. NASA sort of thing? No, because it's not, it's not a, a logic of saying, I want to identify with my oppressor so that my oppressor can stay strong. It's to say that my only vision of what freedom can look like is to be like him. Mm. So it's not that I want to continue to be a servant and he be master. It's I want to be, I want my own plantation too, shit. <laughs> not I want to end slavery, shit. I want my own, I want my own plantation. And, and that becomes too often how we understand freedom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, mm, God, I, I just don't understand it. I, I mean, but, but you see it play out in so many sectors. Again, look at the Bill Cosby example I just gave you. Look at all these other places where so much of what we want, we want to, we don't, we want to be, I want to be in a world where there aren't billionaires. Yes. But how many people are out here caping for billionaires? Is every billionaire a policy failure? I saw somebody say that on Twitter. Yes. Yeah. You can't have a billion dollars without human misery. Right. And there's absolutely no defensible... Um, and you can't get there without mistreating others yes maybe right? right maybe not at the interpersonal level sure so it doesn't mean that you know every billionaire was a dick to somebody right although they t- you but know you you have underpaid you have undervalued somebody in the chain or of- you've invested in a company that has holdings in a place that supports the privatization of prison or the exploitation of prison labor or lack of living wages in in, in another country in a factory somewhere. There, 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 no one has clean hands. And that's all of us, right? I'm sure right now I'm doing something, I'm wearing something, I'm engaging in something sure. that is problematic. I'm not, so I'm not beginning from a place of, of clean hands. At, 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 in, in this capitalist marketplace, it's impossible. Sure. But what I'm saying is, is that I don't, I don't romanticize the billionaire. There's no billionaire who is, is using the money for, for so much good right. that it justifies them having a billion But also dollars. the level of taxation is unfair at that level, right? That, that it, for you to get, even, and this doesn't even deal with mistreating specific individuals yeah. in China or in Alabama or whatever, but like the, the taxation that you're paying is unfair for your value to society. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and their argument is, well, we, we pay no taxes so we can create more jobs and invest. Which does not happen. But, right, and it's also the whole sky is falling narrative that if we just paid one more dollar in taxes, if we just had to go one percentage point, then we wouldn't be able to create jobs and the whole economy would fall. So, it, you know, our margins are razor thin, Torre. That's why we do, you know, and that becomes the argument. Right. And I'm like, nah, B, it's, nah. there's a little more room. Nah. There's a little more room. How did you, let's go back, how did you become an intellectual? Because you're not, I mean, nobody's born into it, right? I no. mean, and, and, you know, you, you, you had a rough time at Morehouse. We've talked about this before. Yeah, yeah. You were homeless after Morehouse. So how do you become an intellectual? Um, Antonio Gramsci, you know, one of the great theorists, you can even say philosophers of the 20th century, certainly political theorists, um, talks about in the prison notebooks this idea that all people, he said men, but all people are intellectuals. You know, some of us are intellectuals by vocation, mm-hmm. um, but that the idea of being an intellectual is not something that's limited to prof- the professional class. And that among us, there can be organic intellectuals. There are people who can emerge from the people who also do a certain kind of intellectual work. Sure. So to that extent, I would say me being an intellectual is not connected to uh, having a PhD or it's not connected to being in a university. I think that some of the towering intellectuals of our time 
have been people without those credentials and without those institutions supporting them. Um, and I don't just mean the, the brilliant folk like James Baldwin, you know, who had that level of training and intellectual discipline and, and who were ensconced in those traditions and who just happened not to go to school. I'm talking about folk who may not even engage those particular traditions. You know what I mean? There are other ways of knowing and seeing and being in the world that can be intellectual, you know. Um, I'm saying all that counts. Um, and so for me, my first entree into what it meant to be an intellectual was very much about a, a deep and profound love for books. And it was about wanting to read and write um, as vigorously as I could simply because it brought me joy and simply because it helped me unpack and understand the world um, in new ways. And sometimes that was fiction. Sometimes that was nonfiction. Sometimes it was the wrestling magazines I was reading. I mean, sure. literally, I was reading wrestling. I was a pro wrestling nerd. And I obsessed about wrestling magazines and I obsessed about everything you need to know about wrestling. And even that helped me understand the world differently. It helped release my imagination, helped me be creative. And then from there, you know, I was directed to different texts. And by the time I encountered Malcolm, um, my whole world changed. When I read the autobiography of Malcolm X, my whole world flipped upside down. And me too. Yeah, I mean, how could it not, right? Yeah. And 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 from there, how old were you when you read that book? I was a teenager, man. I wasn't super young, but I was I was a teenager. I was uh, I think I was maybe fifteen, fourteen, fifteen, and I was reading a lot before then. But then when that book came out, and then I read that Malcolm was a reader, and that there were ways that reading and writing actually saved Malcolm's life, mm-hmm. as did the love of Ella and Filbert, you know, Honorable Elijah Muhammad and all these other folk. I was like, oh, there's something about this, I, this life of the mind, as Hannah Arendt would say, that, that, could, that could help save people. And so I kept going and I kept reading and I kept drilling down on, on, on different ideas. And so by the time I got to Morehouse, I was aware of these traditions and I was aware that there were different kinds of people in the world who saw the world differently and, and, and who I could engage to help see my world differently. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that made me an intellectual, but it certainly made me someone who was obsessed with ideas. And for me, my obsession with ideas wasn't limited to a discipline. I wasn't obsessed with being an anthropologist. I wasn't obsessed with being a professional uh, academic. I wasn't obsessed with being a, um, a, a professor. I was obsessed with the ideas and pursuing ideas wherever they took me. So there are people who are professional, who are trained academics. There are people who are scholars. They, they produce scholarship. But for me, the intellectual is a much more open-ended, creative, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, protein kind of process where, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm as interested in, in, in Coltrane or Baldwin as I am in, you know, Gramsci, who I mentioned, or, or Marx or, or Du Bois. And I think in many ways, Du Bois was that. Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois was a towering intellectual who saw himself in all these different spaces. Bell Hooks, a towering intellectual who operates in all these spaces. Angela Davis, towering intellectual, operates in all these spaces. Yes. You know, Lorraine Hansberry. Yes. And so those are the traditions that I want to be a part of, and, and they're, they're not necessarily academics. You make being an intellectual look cool, <laughs> which I think is great for the next generation of like, well, you're a nerd. You love to read and write. You can be cool with it. That doesn't mean you're outside yeah. of the community socially or some way. And doesn't mean you can't be interested in this and that. Yeah. And there's a generation, I think, of people who are intellectual and cool and talking about hip hop and the blues and, you know, popular culture in interesting ways that makes people say, yeah, this is this is an interesting road to take. Yeah. And I, and I, I want to do that. You know, that was done for me. You know, Michael Eric Dyson did that for me. You yes. know, he made the life of the mind, something that was attractive and, and, and compelling. Um, I think the challenge for us as academics is to do that for the next generation, absolutely. 
The other challenge is we have to um, convey the level of discipline and rigor and just painstaking effort it takes to do intellectual work. You know, people see Michael Eric Dyson on TV, but I remember being a graduate student and going to his house. You know, I was his research assistant and I helped him, uh, I helped compile some of the research for the Marvin Gaye book. Wow. And I remember bringing him, you know, some articles and some papers and some shit. And, you know, and, and Mike is painstaking. He's like, Mike writes every word, he, re- he writes every footnote, he reads everything you give him. Like, he ain't, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. all I did was go to the library. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> And I remember going to his house, and it was like seeing Osama. It was like seeing uh, uh, Saddam Hussein come out of that hole, because he had been in his crib for like a month. And he hadn't cut his hair. You know what I mean? He was just eating and writing fourteen hours a day, and reading. You know, and, and just going in day after day after day. And I'm like, yeah, people see the cool shit, but they don't see the, the level work. of the work and the level of discipline and the level of fight. You know what I'm saying? That it takes to to do this work well. And so, yeah, I want to convey how much fun it is, but I want to convey. You know, I. One of my favorite stories. Um, did I tell you about? I told you about. We talked about Kobe before. Cause I, Go. I, I just I remember thinking like I went. So I played uh, basketball in high school, and I remember when I you, were you a one a point guard? Yeah, I was a one. Yeah, yeah. And um, I remember after school, I went to a different. I went to one high school. Kobe Bryant went to a different high school, and his cousin uh, who ended up playing overseas and still plays overseas. John Cox went to uh, a, a different high school at the time. Anyway, we'd all go over to St. Joe's and we'd work out after. After, so um, you played ball with Kobe in high school? Yeah, we played. Uh, we played like AU together. We, we were actually I, for Sunny Hill. We uh, we started. I was the point guard. He was the two guard. So you were good. You, mean, you played on the same squad as Kobe. Yeah, we graduated high school the same year. Oh, we shit. Had, oddly enough, we we met at basketball camp. Me, him, and Kevin Hart went to the same basketball camp one summer in ninth grade, tenth grade, ninth or tenth grade. Oh shit! Yes, yeah, it was Speedy Mars basketball camp. Okay. And Kevin was you know point guard, telling jokes all the time. Kobe was busting everybody ass. You know what I mean? Um, anyway, so after like a year or two, we start working out after school. And I remember like we, we, we work out, we do drills, we, you know, we play, uh, these games. Um, and we play this game called college, which is basically like just king of the hill one in one out. I score, I'm off next person. Come on. And John's cousin ended up being pro. I was a year or two older than him. So, um, I could beat John. I could beat John. Not, I could beat John. If John and I paid 10 times, I might win somewhere between four and six times. Okay. You know, because the first, point, first person score win, and, and you coming in on defense. Okay. I've played Kobe in my life 200 times. Never beat him. Never beat him. That, that might not seem like a big deal, but when you play a game like that where you got, you got the ball first and all you got to do is score, you think I'd win one. Some. And this was like 10th, 11th, 12th grade. It wasn't like... Yeah. Every you, once in a while, maybe... But he took the shit so serious. And it wasn't like we didn't. Right. But he had a level of like obsession with winning and discipline about it every time that I had never seen before. And then we'd play for an hour or two. Kobe had already done a two-hour workout before we did this. Right. And then after I left, I would go home because now we all went to basketball practice after school. We all did all this other shit. This is like eight o'clock at night. Kobe would then go to the main floor with a trainer and shoot hundreds of jump shots, wow. hundreds of jump shots, hundreds of jump shots from every spot on the floor. I remember one day I came on the gym. Um... And he was shooting free throws left-handed. And I was like, nigga, when will you ever need a left-handed free throw? He would shoot left-handed jump shots, threes, all that shit, too. And I'd be like, bro, like that, that actually doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But sure, maybe one day you'll do a fadeaway left-handed shot out of bounds or some shit. But you will never need a left-handed free, free throw. throw. And then I remember 
He was playing against somebody. I don't remember. It was, it was in the middle of his career, and he broke his hand in the middle of a play. And he shot the free throw left-handed. Yeah, I remember that. And, like, I damn near cried. I don't even think he made it. But the idea that he was preparing for some shit that the rest of us couldn't even imagine. And, again, you could argue it wasn't a good expenditure of time, especially since I don't think he made the free throw. But the idea that he was imagining a moment like that and the fact that he was willing to work an extra hour or two just in case that one moment happened sure. was a testament to his discipline and his commitment as a basketball player. And what I'm saying is, is that as intellectuals, that level of commitment and discipline is also there. You know reading what I mean? 20, 30 books a month, every month. Yes. Digging into them deeply. And reading every footnote, every, every piece of it, right? Every endnote, every footnote, every it's, reference it's that they reference. It's not just spouting big ideas and nah, big words. This ain't about saying big words and performing intellectual life. It, it, it's about a rigorous engagement with ideas and, and pulling things together and making connections that aren't intuitive. To be an intellectual is to produce dangerous ideas, but also counterintuitive ideas. You know what I mean? Not just to cobble together what everybody else said. That's easy. But the work of being a careful scholar, that's some other shit. Which is why tenure is important. You can't be fired. Thus, you can save the dangerous ideas. Exactly. And you have time to produce more ideas. All this is what tenure is supposed to protect us from. Now, you, you can be fired with tenure under certain circumstances. And tenure is certainly under attack these days. But the spirit of tenure is absolutely built around that. And so if you got somebody like Rawls at Harvard who takes 20 years but then writes a magnum opus... Cool. Right. You know what I mean? But think about the amount of work it takes to be W.E.B. Du Bois. Right. You know what I mean? And the level of discipline it takes to be a Carter G. Woodson, where you don't even have access to the libraries. So you read Miseducation Negro and you're like, yo, where the, where the footnotes? What? He couldn't get in the library. Right. You know what I mean? So, so he had to engage these ideas in a different way. Still, still citing people, but in a different way. Du Bois, I mean, think about what it makes for him to, to write Suppression of the African Slave Trade, right, in 1896. To write the Philadelphia Negro in 1899 to write Souls of Black Folk in 1903. Mm. You, you know what I'm saying? I mean, three totally different kinds of books, right? Doing historical work, doing, doing um, sociology. He, he ain't had no sample size. He went door to door in Philadelphia, right? Then to write a beautiful piece like The Souls of Black Folk mm. where he's mixing poetry, sorrow songs, sociological analysis, essays, and then to get to 1935 and to write something like Black Reconstruction and to never stop in the middle. Three memoirs or autobiographies. To write texts like The World in Africa. I mean, you're talking about a level of care and discipline and scholarship that we often don't give people credit for. We only see the book. We don't see all the things that, it, that got you to the point where you could write that book. And, and that's the genius of intellectual life. And I want to take that level of care. I aspire to that level of care. That's not who I am right now. But I aspire to that level of care in the same way that when I watched Kobe, it's when we were 16 and 17, shoot them jump shots, that I aspire to have that level of discipline as a basketball player. Can you talk a little bit more about what it was like to play basketball with Kobe? He was really good at basketball. Um, <laughs> oh, shit. And Kobe would, would, would correct. Would, would, he was so much better than you that he could like. I remember one time it was Sunny Hill. I think it was eleventh grade. We were coming down court, and I was, I was coming down court, and Kobe was like, "Yo, I'm, I'm gonna make a backdoor cut, and I'm gonna throw the just throw it up." So I beat my man to the basket, and I threw a oop, and I threw it crooked. I mean, like crooked, because I wasn't particularly good at throwing alley. That just wasn't my thing. You know what I mean? And I threw the oop, and I'm left-handed, so Kobe was coming up that left baseline. So I threw it too far close to the left side, and anybody but Kobe would have. It would have been a turnover, and I and they probably would have took me out the game because I would like to take me out the game. Instead, Kobe grabs it, does like a cradle draw, and dunks it. Oh. And everybody's like, yo, after the game, yo, that shit you threw to Kobe, that shit y'all did? 
I was like, yup, that's how we, yup, that's, that's yep. how we get down. That's how we play. That's what we do. That's what we do. That's what West Philly do. So, because we play for West Philly, uh, Sunny Hill team. And so, um, he just had a, a basketball IQ that I, that I couldn't calculate. I mean, I wasn't supposed to be on the court with him. None of us were. Sure. You know what I mean? He was just better than everybody else, and he could do everything. And, and the things he could do left-handed, and I was left-handed. He could do things with his left hand, and I couldn't do it mine. You know what I'm saying? And the elite players, because I, was like I wasn't an elite player, but the, the elite players, like the guys who went like high D1 and stuff like that, there was also a level between him and them that, that, was, that was clear even was, at that age. We would sneak in. I remember one summer... Kevin doesn't remember this, but we used to sneak into McGonagall Hall at Temple, right? Because after, after that summer, after camp, we would sneak in and work out. Me and Kevin would, would, would sneak in, a couple other people. Uh, Kevin Hart. We would sneak into the, to the basketball court and, and, and work out. We'd play full court one-on-one. Just shit you do to get in shape. And Kobe was going into 12th grade that year. And Eddie Jones, Aaron McKee, all these NBA players were there. Kobe was playing with the NBA players going into 12th grade. And when I tell you, he was torching them. I mean, he didn't look like, they didn't look like they didn't belong. But you couldn't tell who was in high school and who had just got drafted in the lottery. Like, when you saw Eddie Jones and Kobe go at it, it wasn't clear who was who. If, I, if you came from, if you, did, if you couldn't tell black people apart and you was just like, yo, one of them is in high school and one of them is, is, in, is, the league. is in the league, you wouldn't know which one was which. Kobe was giving them the business. You know what I mean? And, 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 but he never thought he didn't belong. You know what I'm saying? I remember when he got drafted. We were at St. Joe's and I asked him, I said, yo, what's up? Like, he's like, you know, I'm going to L.A., right? And I was like, yeah. He was like, I was like, yeah, I mean, you, you cool coming off the bench? He was like, why would I be coming off the bench? And he said it just like that. Like, I, like, like he had three heads. Like, I looked, like I said, you know what I mean? Like, I asked some weird, like, the moon was made of blue cheese and some shit. I was like, yo, like, are you? I was like, well, Eddie Jones. He was like, Eddie Jones won't be starting over me. And he looked at me just like that. And it, I mean, he, and not bravado, but like facts. Like, yeah, like, 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 almost like, why, why would that? Why do you think that would happen? And Eddie, of course, started the first year, but I mean, it was very clear, very quickly that they needed to make a different choice because Kobe was better than everybody, and he wanted to be better than everybody, and he had natural gifts, and he had a lot of resources, and in many ways, he's also the, like an amalgam of all those things, right? He had extraordinary talent. Mm-hmm. He also had a father who's an NBA. Mm-hmm. Like, if I if, if I had grown up in Kobe's house, I still wouldn't be in the NBA because I wasn't good enough. You know what I'm saying? But gifts, environment. And work ethic. Yes. He is supremely talented and a remarkable overachiever. And when you combine those things together, you get Kobe Bryant's and Michael Jordan's and LeBron James's. And Steph, uh, and Steph Curry. And, and, and Steph Curry's, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What was he like away from the court? He was cool. We didn't hang out a lot, a lot, but because, um, you know, he, was, he, he would do cool shit. Because by 12th grade, he was, on a, he, he was clear he was a star and we weren't. So Kobe would ask you shit like... Uh, I said, yo, so you going on the prom? Yeah, yeah, I'm going on the prom. Who you taking? Oh, I'm taking my girl. Okay, yeah, me too. I'm, I'm taking Brandy. <laughs> and it's like, this conversation only happens so you can tell me, so you can stun a little bit. And it's cool, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but his life was just cooler than everybody else. He had bought this navigator in 12th grade, so he was out in the streets. And, and um, it's probably bought it for him, though. It wasn't no, no, right. no shady shit. Right. But like, he just was out. I mean, he's cool as shit. And so we don't, we don't really stay in touch. I saw him at the, uh, at the BET... Uh, at the, the Genius uh, Talks Jamel Hill was interviewing him And I walked up to him afterward We laughed a little bit And talked about that shit He was like Yo you remember Kevin Hart from basketball? And we just started like Reminiscing about shit And then we just kept it moving I, I'm much cooler with his, with his cousins And his family But, um, but yeah man it was, it, was, it was one of those things That like at, in the moment I didn't know exactly What it would mean to do this But I was very clear In that moment That I was spending time With somebody who was Extraordinary And who would be extraordinary 
I don't think we knew that we had a chance to do some special shit too. You know what I mean? But to think about what came out of those spaces. Yeah. Was... Yeah, you two have had an extraordinary career, varied and broad success in multiple different areas. I'm clearly the loser from this camp, right? No, no, no. Not <laughs> one is the greatest basketball player ever. The other is one of the great comedians of all time. Nah, you know but, what I mean? But, but, but an important intellectual, and you've accomplished a lot of other things. What is Mark Lamont Hill's superpower that has allowed you to be so successful over so long in so many different areas? Hmm. It's not... I want to say discipline so bad, but I don't think that's it. After talking about Kobe, you can't it, talk Right, about right, right. It's like, I ain't shooting no left-handed free throws uh, or right-handed free throws. Um, I think... Uh, I think I'm very... I'm patient. I have a... I, have a, there, there, I remember Cornell West in Prophesied Deliverance, his first real important book. His first book, which was really important. Mm-hmm. Um, talks about this idea of revolutionary patience. Um, and so much of revolutionary work is, is about having a certain kind of p- patience and foresight. Um, and I think what's allowed me to be successful and to survive major hits is that I try, I'm not prisoner of the moment. I try to be prisoner of an event. I try to, I, I try to have a long-term vision. And then even as I'm catching, catching blows to the left and the right, you know what I'm saying? I'm still believing in that long-term vision. So I can, I can write a book that I... I can start to write and develop a book that may not even be... Have, the public may not have an appetite for it for five years but I have the patience and discipline to keep doing it and the foresight to know that that can happen. You know what I mean? I can imagine opportunities and jobs and, 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 and industries and intellectual spaces that, that the world doesn't see yet. You know what I mean? And I think, there, I know a lot of people who, have, who are visionary but don't have patience. You know what I mean? It's like that, uh, on the questions when, when Mo said, like how you have high expectations but got low patience, like I, I think my superpower might just be having high expectations and high patience. And, and that for me is, 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 what keep, is what keeps me going. You know what I mean? And I, and I keep fighting, man. Like, you know, this year's been tough. Uh, and there are other years that are tough. Everybody has tough years. But, you know, um, like Howard Thurman said in The Growing Edge, right, you, 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 you can't be prisoner of the event. You know, you have to look beyond the moment and imagine new futures, new possibilities, even against all evidence to the contrary. Thanks so much to Mark for an awesome interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhull. Our booker is Claudia Jean. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing people because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. 
My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. 